Hello and welcome to the Motor Mouth Podcast with Harry Benjamin and Tim Sylvie. This is the place where we meet some of the biggest names in and around motorsport, chat about their lives and everything in between. We've partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure. Thanks to our partnership, we've been able to create a short series of special podcasts uncovering those within the motorsport community who've been affected by these devastating diagnoses. You can hear those stories, including the Williams F1 team's planning director, Richard Jones, right now on your chosen podcast player. Also, bookings are still available for the Motormouth Charity Karting event with places on August the 10th still on general sale. Enter your team of four to an endurance race and compete with and against a host of motorsport celebs or pro drivers who will be drawn at random to be on your team. Gates open at 12.30 and close at 6pm. For all the information and to see who you could be up against, head to motormouthkartrace.com. We'll see you there and together we can help every single person affected by a brain tumour. It's season eight and we're really excited to be once again teaming up with F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel programme of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport. And let's face it, any chance to get close to Formula One this year, we are all over it. And the brilliant news is you can now return trackside thanks to F1 Experiences. Enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality, first class hotels, and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 experiences package by using the code MOTORMOUTH when checking out online. So, what are you waiting for? Experience the 2021 F1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of F1 Experiences. Get booking today at f1experiences.com. Hello everyone, Tim Sylvie here. Now, today's guest was born in County Durham before spending his formative years in Wales. But did you know that County Durham is the very place where Britain's tallest man was born, standing a remarkable seven feet, seven inches? He went on to play Mag the Great in the TV series Game of Thrones. Never seen it, so I couldn't tell you who that is. Sadly, he died in February 2007. But it is also home to English mustard, which came into existence when in the early 90s, Mrs. Clements decided to grind up mustard seeds in order to get more flavour out of them. She developed a paste from the process that quickly became popular all over the UK. And after being passed down to her daughter, the family business was eventually sold to the Colmans of Norwich. I bet you didn't know that, Harry Benjamin. I did not. Imagine being that person to uh, discover mustard. Yeah. Like, that's kind of... It's quite, I mean, I imagine she made quite a lot of money from that, but it's kind of mad, isn't it? Do you like mustard? No, I hate it. Really? <laughs> I mean, I would never go out of my way to have it, have it, but sometimes it, it can end up in a sandwich. But I, I would never, I would never go out of my way Damn to have it in, in my in my diet. Oh, I love a bit of mustard. Um, what have you been up to? What's new? Um, well, I just got back from Hungary, doing some more GT racing, which is fun, um, and Euro F3 stuff. And yep. then I got a puppy on the way back. Oh. So uh, <laughs> so I've got a new puppy, and well, my dad's got a puppy, uh, more accurately yeah. to say. Um, but I'm, of course, surrounding it and looking after it um, while it's in its infancy. Nice. Um, so, yeah, we should, and he's adorable and, um, and pisses on the floor, but yes. hey. 
got to make use of it. Absolutely. Well, uh, shall I introduce today's guest? I think so. So today we're joined by another of the MB Partners stable run by Mark Blundell in the form of Jan Mardenborough, whose career really took off in 2011 when he won Nissan PlayStation's GT Academy competition when they went on to compete in British GT, the massively competitive Blancpain GT Endurance Cup, Le Mans 24 Hours, Formula 3, GP2, Super GT, Super Formula, Formula E as Simmons Development Driver, Jan Mardenborough, welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. Hello, guys. Hi, Tim. Hi, Harry. Hi, Jan. Very warm welcome to you. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. Where are you at the moment? You're in your garden. You've got a nice blue sky in the background. You're in the UK. Yeah, I'm in, uh, in my hometown. Uh, well, in Wales, not my hometown, but I've lived in my of my life. And uh, yeah, just in the garden because it's, uh, uh, it's sunny for once. Very nice. Uh, looks uh, very relaxing. Looks like a holiday. But um, now for the uh, now for the important stuff, though. Now your route, as Tim alluded to, uh, to motorsport is not typical. Oh, hello. We're joined by a very special guest. <laughs> <laughs> That's not your. Whose dog is that? Is that your is that dog? dog? Yeah, it's my dog. Oh. Heidi. <laughs> Heidi, down. Come here. What kind of dog is it? It's a. Um, she's a Goldador. A Goldador? Uh, what is Yeah, that? so a mix between a Labrador and a Golden Retriever. And she's, she, well, she's about seven months now. Oh, wow. So she's at, yeah, she's at the age where it's, well, she's not a puppy anymore, but she's still... She's still, yeah, very much yeah. the right one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, I'm sure we're here throughout the show. But your route into, um, into motorsport, as Tim alluded to, it was not typical, really, uh, compared to the other guests that we've had on our show, you know, who came up through uh, the sort of the traditional karting uh, system. You had a very different approach and a very different break when it came to your career. And we will come on to that soon, of course, first. Um, but take us back to your much younger years before all that, was was motorsport and racing always a bit of a, a thing for you? When did it sort of first hit you and go, actually, yeah, I, I kind of want to get into this racing world? Uh, nine years old. Um, so cars were my first interest in anything as a, as a kid. Um, so I don't know, like age four, matchbox cars and stuff. And then I think around like age nine, um, around age nine, age eight um kind of motorsport on tv and racing games kind, kind of came at the same time so i was playing uh, gran turismo and colin mccray and at the same time watching british touring cars um and then ever since then uh, it was like oh wow i would love to do that that was i watched it all the time every time it was on on the weekend i was watching british touring cars uh so that era so yeah so from that early age it was like yeah i want to i want to be able to do that when i'm when i'm older and and you're essentially regarded as the original gamer to racer um beating ninety thousand other people to win the gt academy in 2011 which was run by nissan and gran turismo when you entered that competition were you thinking i've got a chance here or, or was it just i'm going to do this for fun see what happens could you could you imagine what was going to happen afterwards it was secondary of your of your point there. It was like just to see how far I can go. So um, at the time I was on a gap year from uni. It was like an unplanned time off, and then it was like, okay, uh, I'm just going to see how far I can go with this. And um, it was only up until the, like the last event uh, of the final at Silverstone where I thought, okay, now I've got a chance. But before that, it was like, okay, things are going well. I'm just going to keep going, see what's happening, and I'm actually all right. Um, 
and then it just kind of happened. Um, but it was I was a completely like a, one of those racehorses where it's just completely blinkered. Yeah, it was weird. It was a weird situation and a weird vibe I was in. Um, it was like I don't care what happens externally. It's just like whatever I'm doing now, that is 100 focus. And it's funny. Very strange time. It's funny as well because now it's it's kind of not unusual for someone to maybe be a star in gaming and then make the move across to real racing or you know gaming is very much at the forefront at the moment. But I suppose in 2011 it was pretty unusual and this was one of the first times it had ever been done. Did you have any idea how big this was all going to become, this whole esports industry, especially related to uh, sim racing? No, I didn't. Um, I knew of esports from uh, around that time of 11 because uh, my friends used to play like World of Warcraft and League of Legends, that kind of stuff. It never interested me at all, but I knew from conversations with them there was always like big events going on in Korea where people are earning like uh, half a million dollar prize funds and stuff, which I thought was mad. But I never thought, I didn't have the vision that this could kind of, at that time anyway, in 2011, where it could kind of uh, get to the point where it is now, uh, where it's huge now, um, especially when you bring YouTubers into it, um, where, yeah, as you say, it's not so unusual to see guys that come from gaming uh, make it, well, try their hand anyway in um, in motorsports. So uh, one example is Jimmy Broadband, like he's now in Praga and Britcar. Whereas uh, it's not normal, but it's like it's more of it happening. Whereas in 2011, to have a, a major manufacturer like Nissan and Sony, just imagine the health and safety checklist that they'd have to go through. Yeah. You know, like, let's go put a gamer in a car just to see what happens. Uh, it it was very out there. Yeah. Well, clearly for you though, it, it paid off. But I'm also curious because it was, you know, 2011, and we talk, we see the games now, and I think the F1 2021 is about to be released, and it's so realistic. You could you could have proper huge setups where you know if you're if you're obviously full on, you can have you know full rigs, and you really get the sense of the full feeling of what a real car is like. But back then, was the technology there enough for you for that transition for you to make from gaming to real life racing, or you know was it still very you know compared to now? I imagine it can't have been as realistic or maybe it was um obviously the technology is better now um the rig that i have at home now is infinitely better than the one i had at the time um but I, yeah the technology was there because i i did it um and there's people that had done it before around the same time as well so uh and you make the best of what you've got um certainly i didn't i didn't have a pc at the time it was just Gran Turismo 5 and my Fanatec wheel that I had um, and I didn't do any karting or anything like that so what I learned um, how to drive and how to race how to racecraft and all that was just on that so yeah it's certainly possible but um, now the technology it's not it's I don't think it's like linear the way that the technology gets better and that in turn it becomes easier to make the transition I don't think it's like a linear okay, um, yeah. uh, it's not linear I think there is there is a point where it gets better and better and better to a point because you you don't it, fundamentally you don't have the uh, you know the the, the vibration mm. um, it, through your backside you don't have that so until that happens um i don't think it gets any easier having better technology better software and better simulators better okay. wheels better pedals it helps but it it's not 
it's not linear. And and actually, just just off on that as well, do you think that we've spoken about this before? I think with um, uh, it might be Rob Smedley, who was Felipe Massa's F1 engineer, and he's now starting this sort of electric go karting. Um, uh, scheme for for young for young obviously races do you ever think that people who can't because obviously karting is so expensive now you know the whole junior ladder is it's always been expensive but it just goes up and up each year it seems do you think that actually there's a it could become a viable route actually where young racers who want to go karting can't afford it actually turn to esports and at least in the early days of their career and try and build up almost you know that what comes with with that in terms of the social following and the presence and then actually with all these opportunities that are now on the rise with esports do you think that's a viable alternative to starting out in kart at four years old I think it is a viable alternative but I don't believe that it can completely replace karting because being in a kart in that environment where you are competing with other people and the 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 brutalness and the it's very um, a violent sport um, especially in karting and to have like other people around you and, and you're in a race it's mm. different so I don't, you can't replace it completely. I mean, certainly, as you said, if you build up a following, a huge uh, social media, because that's needed now, um, for your image, your brand, and then you decide to jump into, I don't know, a, a junior level of motorsports, certainly that helps, but you should not disregard karting. You just, I would recommend you, just, not recommend, but um, include karting. Yeah. Include Carton because you learn so much, so much. I don't think you can, if there's someone who's young and they just do cart with, let's say, a Formula 3 or Formula 4 car compared to the person as Tim is amazing at Sim and then on F3 car, the guy that does Carton is going to still be quite the guy that's just jumped in the F Formula 3 car by just using doing the Sim. When I think back now, I, I'm surprised how. Uh, not easy, but it was kind of seamless jumping into the like a three seventy Z GT four car and just rag not ragging it, but getting it up to its limits fairly quickly. I was surprised about that. Um, I certainly think being uh, young helped as well because I was nineteen, um, just turned twenty, so I had no fear um, at all no self-preservation, well, little self-preservation yeah. and just had an eagerness just to learn and impress as well and just improve myself. Um, so those early races, they went great, apart from one incident in Zandvoort, which uh, my mechanics at the time at RGN would never, ever let me forget about it. And certainly Bob never would never let me forget either. Um, up until that point, that was just before, a few races before Dubai, um, it was it was smooth, um, and uh, I was improving. And but I was always aware that it could end at, at any moment. Um, my mentors as well, uh, Rob and Christian, were always telling me, "Look, it could end tomorrow." You know, for whatever reason, this hand can pull the plug. So I, it was like I was again like a horse, blinkered horse. It's like I need to improve and show these guys that uh, I'm worthy of this seat of this potential because I didn't know what's going to happen after Dubai. That was meant to be at your prize done there. Mm. Bye-bye. Nice to meet you. Ciao. Uh, <laughs> have a, but, have uh, a good life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I'd, in, back then I didn't think about, I didn't think about what could happen after Dubai because I was, I didn't want to 
because it was scary because it's like I didn't want it to stop. Um, but the, fortunately, I can't remember if it was before. I think it was after Dubai. At the, at the after party uh, that we had that uh, I got told uh, that next year is, um, well, the following year is okay, but we can't tell you yet what was uh, what was going to happen. And that, yeah, that was sick. It was, it was awesome, yeah. really awesome. Having that backing of Nissan, just it was all about just getting more and more track time, basically, for you to, to continue your improvement. <laughs> yeah, so 2012 was, uh, looking back now, is even more special than I realised at the time because that was the first year that Nissan um, introduced the new GT3 car, the GTR. And uh, our car that we were running was the first in Europe. So that car was the only car running in Europe at the time. So we were doing British GT and a few rounds of the Blancpain Endurance. So I think we did Monza, Nürburgring, Spa, and uh, I think maybe one one other one. Um, But just to be driving that car, so a step up into GT3, and it was the first car in Europe. I mean, it was so cool. Uh, I think we might have, we got, yeah, we definitely had the first podium in Europe of that car. I don't know about if overall, because I think it maybe got a podium in Japan before us. Oh, for, sorry, first win. But um, yeah, it was it was a dope championship. Um, British GT was was great. We were fighting up until the last um, the last round for the for the championship with with Alex Buncombe. Um And then in Blancpain, we were a bit more unlucky because the car had a bit more issue. It was just teething issues. So at Spa, the car broke down very early on at Spa. Which is the most, you know, when you do a twenty-four hour race, and especially before it gets dark, and then you you break down or something happens, and then you go back to your hotel, and all the cars are still running. Oh. It's the most sad thing in the world, man. <laughs> like it sucks. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, yeah. Overall, we had, I, yeah, it was a great year. It was really good fun, um, especially in that car because um, it it was new and it was still had its development. Um, wasn't quite well developed to where it is now anyway um but it was it was still known as like being an absolute missile down the streets mm. like in other other areas where it wasn't so strong he was good on the brakes but downforce wise it wasn't great traction was terrible it was so had so much turbo lag as well um but on the streets, it was like, a, it was a weapon, absolute weapon. It was like almost embarrassing how quick that early GTR was in GT3. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, what an experience as well. And it's always a pleasure to welcome Tim back to oh. the podcast. <laughs> I, this, it's one, my, my Wi-Fi historically has been absolutely bang on. Yeah. And, and today it's not. So good luck editing this one, Harry. Um, it's going to be a fun one. But where are we up to? 2013? So, yeah, do you want to talk about Le Mans? Let's do Le Mans. So, 2013, you compete in Le Mans, one of the greatest races on the planet, and you achieved third in uh, LMP2. It's a crazy race. How did you find dealing with such a prolonged period of racing, day and night, all the emotions and tiredness that goes along with it? How did you find it? Um, the the most difficult part of that whole weekend was the the build up to it because it's you arrive there for the test day which is like a week before and then you're still at Le Mans for the whole week after, um, and the build up starts on like a, I think the Tuesday, and you're doing everything every single day. The first few days of you're doing nothing Tuesday Wednesday, then it starts ramping up very quickly, and if you don't plan your sleep or your time and your energy, 
by the time it comes race day, you're already fucked. Like, I was fucked for race day. Like, it, there was so much going on. It was, are oh, you the, the first gamer, or oh, second gamer at Le Mans and all this stuff? And it was like, oh, there's so much going on. And then in the race, um, it was, my I think, my second 24-hour race. Second or th- third 24-hour race. Um, and, uh, yeah, it happened to be Le Mans. And uh, I took the start, which wasn't planned because... Uh, our great engineer Ricardo de Villa uh, God bless you Saul he um, he made a bit of an error so in Le Mans back then whoever set the fastest time in qualifying has to start the race and uh, in qualifying my original run didn't go to plan because I got traffic or whatever the usual excuses <laughs> then I think Lucas or, uh, or Michael Crumbs did the qualifying and then went quicker and then they decided to put me in at the end in the night qualifying. Nobody really goes quicker in the night quality because it's in the dark. Then I managed to go quicker and they didn't expect that. So they cocked up because they were like, look, this, the guy, the gamer guy, he's going to be starting the race at the mark because he, did, <laughs> he set the fastest time of the car. I was gassed. I was like, yo, I'm starting the race at the mark. This is going to be cool. oh, no. <laughs> um, yeah. It was mega, yeah. Did so you... everybody else was flapping. I was like, this is hard. Um, this is going to be good fun. Did you get any... Um... Or, or not just at Le Mans, but throughout your, your career, have you ever had people being like, who does this guy think he is? He plays a computer game, he comes in here, thinks he can race. Have you experienced any of that? Yeah, my first ever weekend at Pembury in uh, the Welsh Welsh Classic Sports and Saloon Car Championship, I think it's called. Oh, right. Um, it's like a, a club-level race where I had, you know, you get your signatures the first few races. I was in a, in a 370Z and there was the last year's champion basically came up to me and he was like, oh, I've, I've, I've heard of this because of the previous winners coming down and doing the same race the year before. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, if you see me in your mirrors, don't oh, fight me, just let me go. What and like, I was, I was, I was like, yo, <laughs> fuck you. <laughs> there's no way. There's no way. There's no way. And uh, yeah, I ended up beating, beating him. But that's the only time I've experienced it to my face. I don't know, behind the scenes, I have no idea, but that was the only time I've ever experienced it to my face. Um, yeah, it was funny. It was, it was good. I still remember it vividly. It was, it was, it was <laughs> name, shame. name and shame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the Welsh days, what a, what a twat. in my head I was like yeah you are something else oh well I think you I think you probably showed him uh, enough that you're probably pretty decent as a a real racing real world racing driver anyway and enough so that obviously you're racing in GTs with with a roof over your head a quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor F1 Experiences F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsport official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets first class hotels and transfers and unprecedented access including track tours pit lane walks vip hospitality and loads more it really is the closest you can get to formula one and thanks to f1 experiences you can return to the track this year and motormouth listeners can save five percent on your next f1 experiences package by using the code motormouth when booking online at f experiences.com and then comes the move the following year to single seaters and you're now sort of you find yourself in gp3 what is now formula three um and you take a win in only your eighth star i think it was at the hockenheim ring in, in the sprint race that that must have been 
again, crazy because, you know, are you look, are you looking back at the last three years and thinking, God, I've gone from playing a video game backed by Nissan to being a Nissan driver with a roof on my head racing, endurance racing, and now I'm only a couple of rungs below Formula One. What is happening? Yeah, it was... Um, it was. I didn't expect to take the single-seater route at all. It was only um, when the conversation happened where Alex Buncombe's dad, Jonathan Buncombe, had a conversation with some of the guys at the BRDC to say, Jan looks like he should be in single-seaters. And then that kind of went to Darren Cox, who runs the GT Academy program. And then he was like, huh, maybe we should put him in F3 or try him in an F2 car. Then it was F3. And then the GP3 came came about. I didn't expect it um, to happen at all because, you know, Nissan is in GT cars, not Formula cars. Hmm. Um, but I'm so grateful it happened because you're, you're learning. Uh, development as a driver increases so much um, with cars with proper downforce. Um, so I'm a much more rounded, faster driver um, taking, well, both routes. If I was to do it again and... Darren and all the guys at GT Academy know this as well. You would change, you do the opposite. You'd put them in single seats first and then put them in, in GT yeah. because I was the guy to first trial this out. And because of the GT experience that I've driven, especially in the GT3 GTR, where it's not the most elegant way to drive that car, jumping in an F3 car where it's all so delicate, it took me ages to change the mind of uh, the driving style. It took me a long time. Um, so yeah, if we ever did it again, it would be like, look, single seats first, and then you could do the GTS as well, yeah. like, yeah, alongside. Yeah, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's uh, cool it, experience. It, yeah, it's definitely that. It's a bit ass about face, isn't it? I think the, the only other, another person that jumps to mind who's who's done it uh, the same way is Jamie Chadwick, because she obviously started out in GTS and made the switch to um, British F3. It was hard for her. It took her a long time to get to grips with it. Um, mm. So yeah, I totally agree. It, it should be the other way around. And then just skipping forward a little bit, um, it's funny we talked about this program with um, one of our previous guests very recently, the the slightly doomed Nissan LMP1 program. Um, <laughs> we know a few people that have taken part in it and you know mixed sort of reports on it really some like you know well it was a bit of a experimental exercise um could have been fantastic wasn't but you know it was great thing to be a part of how do you look back at that that interesting time with that very unique car it's an environment which uh if i was ever in a situation like that again you would early you would know quicker if it is going to plan or not fundamentally the car was not given enough time and uh, that that is due to well political internal political things which uh, is ever the the bane of uh, of, of, of sport um, and, and life I guess um, but it wasn't given enough time if that car had another year development um, it would have been a lot different yeah. the thing that really killed the car off was the moment where I mean, I can name people now because, like, it 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 was the, that is fact. That's what happened. So there was this company, um, who I think Torotac, Torotac, can't remember exactly, but anyway, they produced uh, these flywheels, um, which is what the LMP1 car had on the front of its gearbox, which was meant to be our our, our hybrid. So that was used to slow down the car. So um, it was all designed 
when we hit the break, when we lift off, that thing would, I'm not technically, can't remember exactly, exactly how it happened, but that was our brakes of the car. The main, like over 50%, probably even more than that, the brakes of the car. Then the energy stored up in that, that flywheel would then be deployed to the rear wheel. So before we all drive in testing, it, about two months before some cl- time close to, the, to Le Mans, maybe three months before, this company, we were testing it on the car. Marginet was testing it and it wasn't working. And this company were like, oh, well, it works on our buses. And the problem was uh, the G-force in the corners, the pumps that they designed couldn't scavenge enough oil for it to work all the time. So Janae was breaking into a corner. He's at Sebring. He was breaking into a corner and it would turn off. Right. So like it was the it was the bulk of the braking. So he's mid mid braking zone and the thing decides to shut off. He goes off the track. Like how can you drive a race yeah. car where suddenly your braking zone is extended by 15, me- 15 meters because the thing decides to shut off? At that moment, the project was pretty much doomed if it wasn't given another year because um, you can't design a car that was originally designed with this flywheel and then it not be there. Uh, so you have to redesign the brakes, mm. uh, which which didn't stop up until the Le Mans test day. We were still trying different brake material on the Le Mans test day. Our pit lane was the end of the pit lane. And you know how long the Le Mans pit lane is. Our car was coming through the pit lane and the brakes were still glowing in daylight by the time they got to the end of the pit lane. Yeah, That's, that's how much of an issue that we had. So it all stemmed to this hybrid not working because the team was lied to by this company that they said it was going to work on the car and it wasn't working. So at that point it was, it was doomed. So it needed another year of, of, uh, of development. Um, and that didn't happen because of other reasons, uh, that I don't know exactly. Um, but it's, it's a shame really because the guys behind it, uh, they were real, uh, visionaries. Some of the design um, elements of that LMP1 car uh, are still being used to this day now with other, other teams. So, uh, I mean, if you stood at the back of that car, you could see directly from um, to the front of it. It had these two huge uh, channels uh, either side of the tub. Um, the bonnet, for example, was very long. And the reason for that is to have a, a more forward uh, center of aero um, of aero pressure so the car generated uh, much more uh, front downforce um, with that slight design uh, even the rear the rear clamshell um, some design cues are still look very similar to say the Toyota um, from a few years ago um, so yeah the engine was was amazing it was very very strong that engine um, but yeah it was just a shame that it was yeah killed before it was uh, it was it was like a stillborn that's a pretty crude way to put it but it was um yeah it was, it was yeah. a bit like that i think we, we spoke to harry harry tinknell who said you know obviously he was quite involved in, in that project as well and he said you know it's just just a case of what could have been you know it could have really mm. been something special then just to be a part of it was it was a privilege i suppose at the same time working on something so different and so new which just unfortunately didn't didn't quite have the outcome that you wanted yeah, I mean, just the experience of being involved in that team. Um, you learn so much. There was so many things that were different of that car. Um, the obvious being front-wheel drive, but you, uh, how to work through problems as well, because there was many. 
um, that, that experience is invaluable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's a real shame it didn't work out. Like you say, there's some good people involved, so um, real pity. But then after that, you made a very big move all the way to the other side of the world. You went to Japan. How did this come about? Obviously, it's got to be Nissan connected. And importantly, do you speak Japanese? <laughs> uh, so... Yes, I speak a little bit of Japanese. I'm studying at home now. Um, oh, wow. Very admirable. Yeah, because uh, I have goals to get back out. Well, it is the goal to get back out there. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, it's not, don't get me, don't take it the wrong way. Like, it's very small, but I'm, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm working towards it. And, and Japan going out there was um, because of what happened in 15 with Le Mans. Nissan in Europe was pretty much well the 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 situation wasn't good um so the the, the racing um the money that was in putting into Nissan Europe for the European racing was uh was was drying up so um GT Academy at the time they were like uh look we think you should uh go and race in Japan move to Japan because uh Europe if you want to make a career to getting into GP2 again, finding that money to do that. Yeah. It looks unlikely. Um, whereas if you go into their back, Japanese backyard and um, work your way up the ladder again, you can have a career over there. And, um, you know, I'm still, I, you know, I love Nissan and, uh, you know, I want to, to, I've always watched Super GT as well. I've watched that in the past. I was like, this is a cool championship. So the goal was, okay, yeah, I would like a, uh, GT500 seat but in Japan they don't care where you come from what your credentials are bar outside bar F1 if you're an F1 driver you're God in any championship you walk straight in and you get a seat a lot of the time um, but if you're you know uh, been great in Europe and other parts of the world doesn't matter in Japan like you start at ground zero you start in Formula 3 yeah. You start working your way up through GT300 and then if then you have an audition and then you can maybe get a GT500 seat and be a factory driver. Um, and I like that because it's uh, you got to prove to them like who you, your name. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I literally went back a step. So I'd done GP, I did one race GP2. So I'm, I wouldn't say I was in GP2, but I did GP3. Uh, certainly it was, it's a higher level than G- F3. But they were like, okay, we want you to do F3 for a year. Um and then GT3 in the Super GT Championship as well. So I was doing two championships in 16. Uh, almost won F3. Um, I'll leave it like that because I'm going to say some stuff which I'll probably regret later on. But um, that, oh. was, that was really... Oh, that it, was, it was awesome. Yeah, no, but, uh, but it was ja- awesome. Japanese F3 is not to be sniffed at. I mean, it, in fact, the whole Japanese system is, is pretty impressive. Mm. I mean, you, you've got... And, and they make people... They put them on a pedestal out there. Like Andre Lotterer, when he was racing out there, was like he was, yeah. he was godly. You know, people absolutely loved him. Uh, Marcus Ericsson's come from there. Nick Cassidy, it was a proving ground for him. As a young guy called Stuart oh, Moore. Mike, Michael Schumacher, way back when, yeah. and Ralph Schumacher, they both did Japanese the, the yeah. formula, didn't they? Good knowledge. Um, Struan Moore, who um, is, still races a little bit, um, and uh, he, he was out there doing um, Japanese F3, and he did, he did pretty well, not, not amazingly well, but the, the Japanese fans 
adored him, like loved him. There were little Struermore dolls. It was it was insane. Um, it's it's a good championship out there, and you can make forge a very good career for yourself. And you like you say, you did very well. Japanese F three with twelve uh, podiums, four wins. Um, did you enjoy it out there? Do you enjoy the culture, the lifestyle, the the way they go about their racing? I love it out there. I love the championship. Uh, I think Super GT is uh, the best run championship I've ever been in. Um, yeah, the the culture is uh, is very different to Western style. But uh, once you get once you learn the the rules and also the unwritten rules, you can get by and uh, integrate yourself into the into the culture and understand how things work over there. Um, and it's true. Like if you do well over there, you are treated very well. They're uh, they're loyal to you. So um. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm very. I want to go back out there. I want to. I would love to spend my whole career in Japan. Wow. Um, wow. Racing over there in Super GT. Yeah, I love it. It's uh, ever since there's there's been three places I ever I wanted to go to as a kid. It was uh, America, Dubai, and uh, Tokyo. It was ju- just Tokyo, just just because of watching films. Yeah. And uh, to be able to race in all three. Um, and then to race in in, uh, in Japan, all over Japan, yeah, it's it's the best place, my favorite place on earth. It's, uh, it's a beautiful country. That country. Yeah, it's, what it's a amazing! Place, I just wanted to, to pick up though as well. Obviously, you've got GT blood running through your veins, but you've also done Super Formula, which a lot of people might be familiar with. Is sort of the top top level of single seat racing in um, Japan. You know, almost like the Formula One, but in Japan. What was that like as well? But clearly, is is that not where your your focuses are driven either? Because I suppose are they on an equal footing in terms of Super Formula and Super GT, or is one above the other? Um, no, it's seen. It's like. Um... I guess LMP uh, LMP one to Formula One. It's like it's it's completely separate tiers, yeah. you know. Um, a lot of the guys that do Super GT are also racing in uh, Super Formula. Okay. A lot, a lot of the Honda guys and the Toyota, because obviously in Super Formula the engines are Honda and Toyota. Unfortunately, Nissan doesn't have an engine in Super Formula. They used to way back, um, but now they they don't. So uh, a lot of the guys that do yeah GT are doing that championship as well. Um, doing Super Formula what was was a, again a massive privilege. Those cars are insane. I remember them doing Formula Three and uh, Super Formula used to race sometimes on the same weekend. So our races were finished before the Super Formula main event, and you just go on the grid just to see these cars, and they're just fat tires, massive low rear wing. They look like the cars, the F1 cars from like 2007. You know, just wide, aggressive looking things. Um, yeah, it's they got so much downforce. Um, doing it, you know, he learned a lot, and that championship was uh, for me. It was a tough year. There were some real good races where I had a lot of speed, but uh, if I was to do it again, uh, you know, the little that championship is all about the little tiny nuance things you do behind the scenes, and uh, knowing what I know now, it would be completely different. So. Just to give you a little example, uh, and this is my also my fault because I'm a person from a Western country in their country, and I didn't at the time speak good Japanese. So my engineer was was Japanese; his English was non-existent. So I was talking to my engineer through my teammates in Super GT, Kazuka Hashina, who knew English, who then translates my engineer, and then my engineer would tell Kazuki 
in Japanese something, and then he would translate it to me. Um, wow. So we oh would do that in the race. And of course, that's never going to be the most ideal situation. Yeah. But uh, again, that's not um, that's not fault of them at all. But knowing that if I was going to a championship like that again, knowing if that was the same situation, it'd be like, no, look, we need to do something different. Mm. Um, but it was cool. It was a cool experience. It was, uh, yeah, unfortunately one year, but I got pole at Suzuka on my last ever race, um, which was nice. Um, I, I just wonder whether in that process of translating um, from teammate to um engineer to teammate back down again whether anything was t- lost in translation you know the, the odd thing not passed through that perhaps should have been yeah there was probably some things that were not quite exactly how i meant them to be uh, said yeah. but uh if it was anything you know you know bad no that wouldn't have happened because the guy that was translating because you know he's like one of my best mates he's like the most like top three teammates i've ever had and uh, yeah, he always, he always uh, got my back. I've always got his. Yeah, top top man. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, listen, there's um, there's plenty of other bits we can talk about, but the interest of time, we're going to skip ahead to our final three, and we ask these questions to everybody that comes on the show. I want to, uh, you know, I said I was learning some Japanese. You asked me a question. Have I learned any Japanese? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I have a look. I can say some stuff. So okay, let me just say, Watashi uh, wa yanmaru desu. Uh, need you to side us, uh, raise this, Yoroshiku Arigashimasu. So that's basically, I am Jan Mardenbrough. I'm 29 years old. I'm a racer. Uh, pleased to meet you. Oh. Wow. What, what does that mean? <laughs> that means, that, that actually means something. I can't, I can't remember. I can't remember what. I got, I've got a Japanese mate, Taka, who, uh, what do you who, who, he, Mushi Mushi. Isn't that when you pick up the phone, you go, uh, Mushi Mushi. Um, I know little bits and pieces. Moshi, 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 moshi. Yeah. How um how did how do you learn it? Are you like is Duolingo or is it like, was something a bit more advanced than that or what's how are you learning Japanese? Um, at home, um, there's a uh, a similar to Duolingo. I think it's called I I Talky. Okay. I Talky, and uh, they have uh, online tutors. So, I mean, the last lesson I had was about five weeks ago. Um, but so I was talking to a Japanese lady. Oh, cool! Nice. Who's fluent okay. in English and German, and uh, we'd have like a uh, an hour lesson uh, just to uh, it just has a syllabus. So it sounds uh, that's. I mean, I'm kind of jealous. My I tried to learn French earlier at the start uh, of lockdown, and I think we. I did one Duolingo lesson and never went back. So I don't have the determination. Uh, but it's very embarrassing when you go to another country and you just can't speak. It's terrible. But Japanese, it's probably quite integral especially with the with the engineer side of things as well you've got otherwise you're gonna you're gonna be missing out on things aren't you mm. uh, but Jan look uh, it's I mean it's been absolutely fascinating getting to know you and getting to know a bit a bit more about you as well and, and there's there is stuff as Tim alluded to that we've sort of skipped over it but in the interest of time we do have our final three questions which as Tim has said we asked to all of our guests it's just nice to see the uh, the variation in answer so uh, Tim do you want to kick off yes indeed um Jan what has you excited at this very moment apart from investing in new wi-fi bitcoin yes oh 
Oh, now, now we can talk. We can talk. Right, what yeah. Oh, yeah? Right. Okay, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can talk Bitcoin for hours, you know. Okay, what, what, what you got? So I, I, I'm, I'm into, I've got um, Ethereum and a little bit of Litecoin and a minuscule piece of Bitcoin, like 0.0027 Bitcoin, um, which at the moment is tanking. Like it's, my, my, my whole portfolio is, is completely falling through the floor. What, what are you into? Uh, just Bitcoin. Um, I have a little splattering of like one percent in other, but uh, that's just a little speculative thing. The majority, of every ninety nine percent, is is just in Bitcoin. Um, but then uh, the reason is I've been in, in this for like five years now, um, and it's uh, I understand it and why it's created and the reason why it's doing what it's doing currently. Um, my other interest in uh, Apart from racing, photography is uh, financial uh, mm. economy, um, how oh, things wow. work. And um, yeah, like it's uh, without sounding too tinfoil hat, conspiracy theorist, crazy person, it's pretty much rigged against you. You can't save your way to having a, say, generational wealth um, unless you have many investments in yeah. or, or land or housing or property and stuff. Whereas, um, yeah. Bitcoin, it's you trust code, yeah, and it's uh, immutable. So yeah, it's um, uh, it's an interesting yeah. subject. So it's it's one that I'm I'm relatively deep into in terms of knowledge, not in terms of the amount of Bitcoin or or, or crypto that I own. But I find the whole subject fascinating, and I've recently got into um, non fungible tokens. And mm. and fan tokens, which have found their way into into motorsport um, mm. with with McLaren and others, um, it's it's a hugely fascinating subject. I can feel a Bitcoin special with Jan Mardenborough coming on. Um, yeah, I'm keen. That that would be dope. I'm all <laughs> over it. I, tell, I actually on, on that. I had a proper discussion with about this with Jordan King the other week as well. Ooh, yeah. Uh, he he's got he's got a bit of Bitcoin and a bit of all these other stuff going on. So I think we could probably get a few people together and have a good old uh, a good chat about it. Yeah, that would be awesome. Who's invested in what? So uh, we're we're slow, we're building up a list now. So we've got Jan, Jordan King. We'll find a few more and then we'll get you all together. But it is literally <laughs> one of those things that you can you would happily get together and just talk about. Because it's such an interesting subject, so uh, genuinely mean it. Well, actually, we've got. Our, I did. I don't know if the guys at MB Partners spoke to you about the tenth of August, Jan. We've got our karting day. If not, we'll talk about it offline. Um, but that that's that could be our opportunity to natter about Bitcoin. <laughs> um, okay, good. I, I like that answer. We've not had that one before. Harry, over to you for question number two. Yes, question number two, Jan. If not doing what you're doing, which was being a pro racing driver, what would you be doing? What would you have done? Um, I would be most likely designing furniture for, uh, for DFS or something like that. <laughs> I was not expecting yeah. that. Um, wow. Yeah, it was. It was when I went to uni in 2010. No, sorry, when I reapplied to go to university in the year of GT Academy 2011, I was accepted on a, a furniture design course. Um, so yeah, it was that it was probably along those lines like it's scary how uh how it, i'm not doing that because mm. uh it sounds shit <laughs> <laughs> well at dfs there's always a deal on isn't there for those so uh <laughs> so, <laughs> don't know how they make any money <laughs> wow how crazy is it how how one one small thing can change the outcome of, yeah. of what your 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 path in in life is is quite incredible isn't it um Tim, you've got the last one, haven't you? I do indeed. Uh, what are you scared of? Losing my speed. 
Yeah. Nice. Okay. Nice. Is that, is, can that happen? Like, is that something racing drivers, that, that can happen to a racing driver? Is that something that can actually feasibly happen? I suppose it's getting older, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's, well, it is, yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I, you, you can see it with some drivers. Let's say Vettel. He's not uh, the same guy you know, was five years ago. He's just not. Um, he's, he's. I think he's still maybe lost a little bit of his speed, but the, the racecraft is like it's gone, man. Like it's not there. Like the amount of times he's spun in the last three years. Yeah. That there's not. It's not how he's not how he was before. I mean, there's a video on YouTube which I watched when I first started racing, and I've just remembered it because it's amazing. It that he's racing Hamilton when they were in F three. You're F three. And at this German track, Laus, Laus, Laustritzring, I can't say it. Laustritzring. That's it. Yeah. And it's the half the track, it, most, it's mostly wet, but there's some uh, some dry patches, but it's a mostly wet track. And it's just Vettel and Hamilton for like four laps, just yeah. overtaking each other side by side. And like you see that Vettel back then when he was, I don't know, 16, 17. And when you compare it now, like... It's so different. So yeah, that scares me. I have to do as much as I can not to to stop that from happening. You know, training, hand eye coordination stuff, uh, sim, karting, mm. just being in the seat of a racing car. Yeah. Um, it's still my my only folk passion is, is racing, being a professional driver. So excellent. Well, yeah, that's three excellent answers, um, and uh, particularly like your Bitcoin one. Um, but Jan, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, we obviously wish you all the best for the future. I hope to see you uh, back in Japan racing out there. Um, if anyone wants to follow Jan, you can do so on his socials, Jan the Man, um, his website, yantheman.com, and Jan's blog, which is definitely worth a read. I've started having a, a little nose into that, some good stuff appearing there. Um, so, um, Jan. And best of luck with the future. Hopefully see you at our casting day. If not, we'll see you in a paddock soon. Thanks for joining us on the Motormouth Podcast. Thank you, Tim. Cheers, Harry. Before you go, one final reminder to check out F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first class hotels, travel and exclusive behind the scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experience offer packages like no other so to book your f1 experiences package head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter code motormouth you'll get five percent off too thank you so much for listening to the motormouth podcast do make sure you give us a follow on our socials twitter at motormouth underscore instagram at motormouth underscore official and facebook just search motormouth you can also download the motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from mmtv create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy we're also proud to be supporting the brain tumor charity too so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker don't forget to like subscribe and review and until next time you've been listening to the motormouth podcast